Good morning. So today we're going we're gonna to look at the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant. And I want to start with this this morning. Um, often when we look at Scripture, it looks disjointed. It looks like there wasn't a plan. And my, my goal today is to see that there was a plan that God has planned in advance far before us. Unlike your pastor who did not plan ahead and waited to the last minute, which is why I was scurrying around getting <laughs> the Lord's stuff. Or I thought about it last night. I was like, yeah, we got the stuff at the church. And it was not here. What I thought was here was not here. So my bad, but we're here and I am excited about what God has for us today. We're going to talk about one of the, the cornerstones of what we believe. And so today I'm, I'm excited for the message that has God, God has for us. So last week we focused uh, specifically on what was missing out of the old covenant uh, for all but just a few people who, who had the opportunity to work in the temple. Those were the priests. Um, and some of the things that we talked about last week is that God was not accessible as he, as he is today. Remember we talked about last week there was the, the, the temple or the tabernacle. The, the tabernacle was the tent before they built the temple. And there was the, the inner room and then the innermost room. And the innermost room is where the, what was called the Holy of Holies. And that's where the presence of God was. And only the high priest could go in uh, once a year uh, on, a, on a particular day. So God was not accessible. Um, and his dwelling place on earth, when he was on earth, it was in, in that place in the tabernacle and, and in the temple. And because of the persistence of sin, uh, nobody but the priest could go into that place. And this caused two issues that, we, that the author of Hebrews identifies and we talked about last week. And that's, number one, that under the Old Testament, God was inaccessible. And then number two, because God was inaccessible, there was no personal experience with God. And so that's one of the main issues with the Old Covenant is that it was not able to comp fully accomplish God's intended purpose, which we've talked about a lot over the last couple of years, which is God restoring the broken relationship that we have with Him. When Adam and Eve chose to sin in the garden, we were separated from God. And so this plan that's been working itself out uh, throughout history, the, the final goal of that is for us to be united with Christ. And so the, the Old Covenant did not make that better, but it was a step that was necessary. And we're going to look at that today. And the final step in God's plan in the process of redeeming mankind is Jesus. It's what we call the new covenant. And that's what we're going to focus on today. And, and like many of the other covenants that were instituted prior to Jesus's life and death, um, each of those brought us a step closer to that final plan, which was Jesus, which was the restoration of that relationship. And some of the examples of those covenants were the covenant like Abraham that God made with Abraham to create this holy nation from his descendants or the covenant that God made with Israel on Mount Sinai uh, saying that Israel would enjoy a unique relationship with him that the rest of the world would not get to experience. And so God over time is working in the lives of mankind to work us closer to himself. He's working to restore that relationship that, that was destroyed by sin. And so this final covenant that God makes with Israel is the promise of a new, a better covenant. And he speaks of that covenant with the prophet Jeremiah. And I want to start here today because I want us to, to, it's good often to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of what God's doing. And so the prophet Jeremiah says this, Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant that I made with their ancestors on the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts and I will be their God 
and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least, of the, the least to the greatest of them. This is the Lord's declaration, for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. So God is telling the people of Israel that a better covenant, something better than what they've already experienced is coming. And that's exciting for them. So God's next step in this redemptive process is to bridge that gap that existed between him and his people where they could come close to one another, where people could be in God's presence. He's going to remove some of that separation between us. And that process required in order to make that happen is what we're going to be discussing today. There was a specific thing that had to happen in order for us to be able to be brought close to God. In this section that we, we've been in for the last few months in the book of Hebrews is the author's attempt to remind the church of God's promise that he made back through the prophet Jeremiah and the fulfillment of that final covenant that they've been waiting so long to see. Remember, these people were, were Jews. They were Israelites. And they came to faith in Jesus. And they chose to believe in him. They were separated from their families. They were ridiculed. And again, their temptation is to go back to what they knew before, to go back to the old covenant so that they could be accepted by their family and by their friends. And so the author is writing this book to try to help them understand, don't give up on where you are. Remember, Jeremiah said there was a better covenant coming, and this is that covenant. That's his goal. So as we move forward in in chapter 9 today, we're going to see that the author describes this new covenant and what it means for the church then and what it means for us today. Before we read our passage, though, I want us to look at one more that's referenced in Hebrews chapter 9, again, to kind of let us take a step back and to get a better understanding of the gravity of what we're going to read in chapter 9. So look with me at Numbers chapter 19. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. And and this is just one of the many processes that was required in order to, to purify the people so that they could be in the presence of God. If you remember, the whole process is to make the people holy so that they can then be in the presence of God. We've talked about this before. If God is holy and we are unholy, if we go into God's presence, our unholiness rubs off on him, right? If you put just a little bit of poop in your favorite drink, that drink is no longer good anymore. We've talked about that before. I always go back to that because it's, you go, oh yeah, I'm not drinking that, right? We get it. And so there's a process that has to happen. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. We cannot be unclean and go into God's presence because that would tarnish God's holiness. So look at me at Numbers chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And this is one of many, like I said, processes that the people had to go through in order to be made pure. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron. This is a legal statute that the Lord has commanded. That's key. It's legal. You have to do this. Instruct the Israelites to bring you an unblemished red cow that has no defect and has never been yoked. Give it to the priest Eleazar, and he will have it brought outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. And the priest is to take some of the blood with his finger and sprinkle it seven times toward the front of the tent of meeting. The cow is to be burned in his sight. Its hide, flesh, and blood are to be burned along with its waist. The priest is to take cedarwood, hyssop, and crimson yarn and throw them onto the fire where the cow is burning. Then the priest must wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. After that, he may enter the camp, but he will remain ceremonially unclean until evening. The one who burned the cow must also wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and he will remain unclean until evening. A man who is clean is to gather the cow's ashes and deposit them outside the camp in a ceremonially clean place. 
and the ashes will be kept to the Israelite community for preparing the water to remove impurity. It is a sin offering. The one who gathers the cow's ashes must wash his clothes, and he will remain unclean until the evening. This is a permanent statute for the Israelites and for the alien who resides among them. Okay, that's a lot, right? That's one of the shorter ones, okay? And, and what he didn't talk about there, and it talks about later in chapter 19, is they would then take those ashes and they would mix it with water and they would sprinkle it on the people to make them ceremonially clean. That's one of many processes that had to happen to purify the people so that they could come closer to God, so that he could make atonement for their sin. And so as we are contrasting that system, the old covenant today with the new covenant, I want you to keep that in mind. All of the work and all the preparation. Go find a red cow that's never been worked. And Have you ever burned an animal before? Probably not. It, barbecue doesn't count. Okay? <laughs> Guys, sorry. I grew up on a farm, and there were times where animals died, and you have to dispose of the body. And if it's a big animal, it requires a big hole. And there were several times over my lifetime where we would have a lamb die, and we would need to burn that carcass. It is a lot of work. It does not just burn quickly right? Most of your body is what? Water. It takes a lot of fire to burn that all up. So this process that they're describing in the book of Numbers to burn the whole animal is a significant process. Don't think about this as something you're going to go do in an hour. This is a day long, probably into the night process. And also remember the area they live. They didn't have a whole lot of trees over there. I didn't think about that till this week. Where they get all the wood it's going to take to burn this stuff? Somebody's got to gather all that up. This is not an easy process, and I want us to keep that in mind today as we move forward, okay? Also, I want you to note this. This process had to be repeated every time a person became unclean. When they sinned, this process had to be done until all the ashes were gone. It said that they kept them together until the ashes were gone, and then they had to go through this process again, okay? So that we're seeing this repetition of this laborious process that had to happen in order for us to become to come clean so read with me from hebrews and let's look at the beauty of what jesus has done for us so this is hebrews chapter 9 we're going to read verses 11 through 22 today it says but christ has appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come in the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands that is not of this creation so he's talking about heaven he entered the most holy place once for all time not by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a young cow, sprinkling those who are defiled, sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our conscience from the dead works so that we can serve the living God. Therefore, he is a mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance because a death has to take place for redemption from transgressions committed under the first covenant. A death had to take place. Where a will exist, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is only valid when people die since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. That is why even the first covenant was inaugurated with blood. For when every command had been proclaimed by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats along with the water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll itself and all the people. 
saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God has ordained for you. In the same way, he sprinkled the tabernacle and all the articles of worship with blood. According to the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so we see this process in Numbers. This process of the shedding of blood, of the sacrifice of animals to make us clean. And so what the author of Hebrews is telling the people is this, this guy, Jeremiah, that prophesied so long of this new, better covenant, this is it. This is what Jesus has done for us. There's a lot to unpack here, but there's two main things I want us to see today that are in, in comparison to what we saw last week. I know it can be easy to get lost in all that scripture, but we need to see what Jesus has done. Okay, the old covenant had limited access and limited effect. We talked about that last week. Limited access and limited effect. Only a few people could be in, or one guy a year could be in God's presence. And the process of cleanliness had to be repeated over and over and over again, right? Second thing I want us to see is in the new covenant has unlimited access and permanent effect. So when you frame it that way, it's really easy to see how significant it is that Jesus came and died for us. Because his blood was shed once for all. He went into the Holy of Holies and he stayed there. He's there now, sitting at God's right hand. Jesus entered that most holy place, stayed there, and he made one sacrifice that covers all sin for all people at one time. So God sent his son to take the burden of sacrifice and atonement off his people. All of that work that had to be done in order to become ceremonially clean, in order to atone for the sins of the people, Jesus took all of that weight, not just the weight of the work, which I think is significant, and I've drawn our attention to that today, but the weight of the death itself, Jesus took that on himself. For generations, the atonement of sin relied on a lot of people doing a lot of work in just the right way. They couldn't do it in a way other than was prescribed or it wouldn't work. A lot of people had to do a lot of work in the right way. This process, like the law, showed the inability of the people to be God. Right? We talked about that before, that the law doesn't make us more godly. It points out the fact that we are not godly and we need God in our lives. And that's the same thing that these ceremonies did. They showed us that we can't be perfect, that we can do our very best to try to make ourselves better, make ourselves more like God. But those processes have to be repeated over and over and over again, and the work is never finished when we try to do it in our own power. We aren't perfect, and even in our best attempts, we tragically fall short of the goal, which is Jesus, which is perfection. That's why he says in verse 14 that Jesus is so much greater. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse our consciousness from the dead works so that we can serve the living God? He's so much greater. The sacrifice of Jesus is unlimited and so much greater because of the value of the sacrifice. We've talked about this before, and you've probably read this before, but when an animal was to be sacrificed, we've talked about this specifically with Cain and Abel, about the value of a sacrifice, right? We don't know why uh, Abel's sacrifice was better than Cain's, but Scripture says that it was. Something was not right. We believe that probably it had, a heart, had to be a heart issue in the way Cain offered it. But the sacrifice had to be perfect. And so the value for the people is they would go out and select their firstborn, their best animals. And, and think about that in a farmer's terms. Those are the ones you want to breed, right? Because you want more that are like that. But they would take those and they would sacrifice those. That was the value for them. But Jesus, who is the one and only Son of God, 
He sacrificed himself. And he's far more valuable than the best of lambs and goats and bulls and cows. And there have been millions of those things, those animals, the bulls, the heifers, the goats, the birds, the lambs, all those things. But there's been only one Jesus, only one Son of God. And he lays himself on the altar and he gives himself over for the forgiveness and the atonement that we all need. And that sacrifice, because of its value, never has to be repeated and therefore is permanent in its effect. The value was so great that it only had to happen one time. It says in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15, Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called might receive the promise of the internal inheritance, because a death has taken place for redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus, upon giving of his life, enacted the new covenant. That's when it started. That would repair what had been broken for so long. And what a relief we get to experience in knowing that the burden of right living and of sacrifice is no longer on us. That it's not up to us to do those processes in just the right way in hopes that we would be atoned. What a relief to know that Jesus has done all of that for us already. But how does that work its way into our lives? How do we, how do we get our minds out of a works mentality of I have to do things the right way in order to be accepted by Jesus? Because that's, that's what the church that the author of Hebrews is writing to them about. That's where they find themselves. They find themselves stuck between two worlds. One that says you have to do all of these things in order to become clean, in order to have your sin atoned for. And this other world that says, no, it's already been done for you by Jesus. And so how does that get into their lives? How do we go from living for ourselves and in our power to living under the new covenant, living under Jesus' power? Look at verse 16 and 17 with me. It says, where a will exists, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will is only valid, uh, a will is valid only when people die, since it is never in effect while the one who made it is living. I listened to a, a commentator this week that talked about this particular segment, and I want you to think for a moment about a, a story in Scripture where we see a will enacted before the parent dies. Anybody remember what that story is? Anybody? prodigal son good job Wes he gets all the bonus points today the prodigal son and he makes the point that the way this is is translated that word will can also be translated as covenant a will is a covenant and in order for this will or this covenant to go into effect something must die in our lives in order for us to to receive this covenant Jesus had to die. Jesus' death is what instituted the new covenant and opened up the opportunity for us to know God as described by Jeremiah. His death opened up access to God and through that access we can know God. Look at what Jeremiah says again in verse 33 and 34. I want to draw our attention to this. I want us to see what God planned and promised long before Jesus ever was born on earth. He said, instead, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the greatest to the least of them. For I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin. This is why Jesus died. Jesus died to bring about this new covenant 
to make atonement for our sins, to be the sacrifice that was required in order for us to be made right with God. His death on the cross is what gives us our purity. Verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 9, it says, According to the law, almost everything is purified by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Blood had to be shed in order for us to be forgiven. There was a price that must be paid for sin. I heard somebody describe it once this way. If you were to go to a court of law and someone was guilty of what they were accused of and the judge let them off anyway, we would not call that justice. We would call that injustice. And the same is true for us. We stand before God as sinners guilty of sinning against a holy God. And if God was just to brush that under the rug, it would go against his very nature because he is a just God. And so in order, if we think about this in legal terms, which it describes it in the book of Hebrews, in order for God to continue to be who he is, in order for him to continue to be just and also restore his people to himself, a penalty had to be paid. All of us are guilty. All of us are unholy. And Jesus took that sacrifice. He paid the price for each of us so that we could know him. This morning as you came in, you had the opportunity. Well, you didn't. I wrote this because I thought we were using something different. We're having the Lord's Supper today. And I want us to think about in terms of what we've talked about today. In a minute, I'm going to have some deacons come up. and They're going to, they're going to serve this to you. But as we do that, I, I don't know about you. I grew up, we don't do communion real often here at our church. But when I grew up, we did it once a month, every Sunday. And it just became a ritual became a thing that we did, and I thought about what it meant, but I didn't internalize. You know how you, you hear people talk about, uh, or you'll say to your child, did you hear me? And they'll say, yeah. I'm like, okay, well, hold on. Did, did you listen to what I said? Because there's a difference. You know, like Charlie Brown, anytime, was it Charlie Brown? Where the mom, all you hear was, wah, 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 wah. I think that's often, for me anyway, when I would approach the Lord's Supper, that's what was going on in my head. I, I understood what it represented, but I didn't really internalize what that meant for me. And so today, as we, as we take the cup, and it has to, and, and I, I want to say this too, we're going to read part of this story in just a minute. When Jesus presents this meal to the disciples, it wasn't anything special. It's what they were having for dinner. And he took it and he said, this is a representative so today we're having cran, cran grape juice, because that's what they had at Dollar General, and some wheat thins, okay? That's, that's going to be the Lord's Supper for today. But just before his death, Jesus gathers the disciples together in the upper room to celebrate Passover, right? And if you remember, that's a ceremony that they did every year to remember when they were still in slavery, in bondage, in Egypt, and Moses is there speaking to Pharaoh, telling him that God has said to let his people go. One of the final things that happened is that God told Moses to go and tell the Israelites to put what on their door? Blood, right? To paint the blood of an unblemished lamb on their doorpost. And that night, as death passed over all of Egypt, those who had been covered by the blood of the lamb did not die. And so Jesus is before the disciples, eating this meal, celebrating the Passover, and I have to 
hope in my mind that the disciples fully understood what was happening. But if I was in that room, I probably would have missed it until after Jesus died. And then I would have went, oh, now I see. But it's a celebration of God's deliverance. On this night, Jesus eats this meal to celebrate a new Passover. Jesus is about to be the spotless lamb that will be sacrificed in order to cover the sins of all people. And I want us to put ourselves in that room for just a moment. Imagine that you're one of the 12, that you're sitting there with Jesus, who you've spent the last three years with learning about who this man is and believing in your heart that he really is the Son of God because of what you know of him, what you've experienced as you've walked with him. And he's, he's reminding you of this Passover. He's explaining to his followers what he's about to do. I want us to just pause for a moment in that room. And I, I want to talk specifically to anybody in this room today that may not have trusted Jesus. As we've talked about having a right relationship with him. If you don't know what that looks like or you're not sure what that means. As you look at, I'm going to take these out quick. This, here's our wheat thins. This is super fancy. And our grape juice. Okay? When you look at that and you, and you haven't had an opportunity or you haven't taken the opportunity to trust Jesus with your life, this represents hope for you. This is a promise. This is a promise that, that the separation that you feel between yourself and God, this is a promise that that separation can be closed. And not because of anything that you can do, but because of what Jesus has done. He has made a way. He has done all the work. It's a symbol of hope. And I want you to understand that when Jesus is celebrating this Passover meal with his disciples, with these men that he loved, you were on his mind. He knew what was about to happen as he reminded them a story of the Passover lamb. Of that process, he was thinking about all the men and women and children that would be born after this moment who would need to be atoned for, who would have sin in their life, who would need to be forgiven of that sin. And so as he's sitting in that room with the 12, trillions of people are on his mind because he understands the weight of what he's about to do. And so as we look at the, the grape juice today, as we look at the wheat thins, what I want us to understand is that when Jesus raised that cup, when he broke that bread, he was thinking about you. And he did this out of love, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Look at what he says in Luke chapter 22 through 14. It says, when the hour came, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And then he said to them, listen to this, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Fervently desired. He craved. He was so looking forward to this moment. Think about for a moment, maybe, maybe it happens now still as an adult, maybe it was just a kid. Think about the anxiety or the, the anticipation of Christmas morning, of waiting to open those gifts, right? Those feelings of not being able to sleep because you're so excited. That's the kind of passion that Jesus is talking about. When he's telling the disciples, I have, I have craved for this moment. My whole time on earth, these 33 years have been about this moment about what is about to happen. And I've been wanting to tell you about this from the beginning, but I had to wait until now. And so here we are in this room with Jesus. 
who we've had experiences with, who we know. And this morning, as we, as we take the Lord's Supper, if you've not before given your life to Christ, I would like to invite you to do that today. Before we take the Lord's Supper, it's really simple. And, and if you'd like to do that, here's what I'm going to do. Everybody, I want you to bow your heads. This is not about your heads. Raise your hands down. I just want everybody to bow. We're going to pray together a real moment. And if you've not before trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's very simple. I want to walk you through it. It's about admitting, it's about believing, and about giving yourself to Him. You can just pray this prayer with me if you've not prayed one before. It says, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and that you gave your life to pay for my sin. And I want to accept that gift today and give my life to you. Thank you, Jesus, for doing what I could not do and for restoring my relationship with God. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer today or prayed something like it, in your heart, if you know that you're being drawn to the Holy, by the Holy Spirit to enter into a relationship with God, I want to invite you to share that with somebody today. It can be me, it can be one of our deacons or one of our elders. But share that with somebody. If you pray that today or you prayed it in the past, this cup no longer is just hope. This cup is your reality. This cup is not about something that Jesus will do one day. It's something that he has already done. It is a price that's already been paid. And Jesus did it out of love. As we look at this recounting of this event by Luke, notice the emotion that Jesus portrays in his wording when he says, I have fervently desired to eat this Passover with you. It was significant for him. Jesus is about to be the sacrifice. And he gives the disciples specific instructions on how to remember what it means. It says he took the cup. This is Luke 22, verse 17 through 20. It says he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, take this and share it among yourselves. For I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread and he gave thanks. He broke it and gave it to them and said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. The blood was about to be shed that was required by the, for the sacrifice. The blood and the bread play such a significant role in reminding us of what this means. We didn't discuss this today, but I want you to see this as well. I mentioned it last week, but in the, the, in the, uh, there's the innermost Holy of Holies, and just outside of that, there's a table with a plate with the bread of the presence on there. And as Jesus is talking about, this is my body broken for you, he's using that bread. He's calling their attention back to something very specific. That bread was there to, to remind the people of a promise that God made that he would always provide for them. It was a reminder of the manna. It was a reminder of a promise that if there was any need, God would provide. And so Jesus is taking these two things. He's taking the blood and the bread and he's marrying these two ideas together for his disciples. And he's saying, my father has always promised that he would provide. And today he has. He's providing me and I'm gonna make the sacrifice for you. So as you take the cup today, don't just consider what it represents in theory. As you drink the cup and you eat the bread, remember the covenant that you made with God when you gave your life to him, when you prayed that prayer for the first time. And you said, Jesus, I believe that you're the son of God. 
I believe that you died for me and I needed that because I'm a sinner. And in return, I'm going to give my life to you. As you prayed that prayer, whenever that was, it could have been five minutes ago, it could have been 30 years ago. This cup is your reality. It's a reminder that you are no longer a slave to the law. This is a new covenant that's unlimited and permanent. So as we take this cup, I want you to remember that Jesus has fulfilled the law. So don't make it your master again by trying to do things on your own. As you take this cup, you remember that Jesus was the sacrifice. He is the one that provided it. And there's no need for us to yoke ourselves again under the law and try to be somebody or be something for God to earn His love and affection. You've already got it. It's already yours. There's no requirement for you to try to be something else. So if the the deacons would go ahead and come down. This morning as you take this bread and as you eat it, thank God for fulfilling His promise to provide all that you would ever need. So I think this will probably be the easiest way. If y'all will just stand here in the front, y'all can come down the center, grab a, a cracker, or they'll hand it to you in a cup, and then you can go back and sit down and hold it, and we'll take it together. All right, you'll go ahead. You start on the front.
So here we are back in that room. Jesus hanging out with his boys, right? Talking about something significant that's about to happen. And so this morning as we are here together, I want this to be a reminder for us of what Jesus has done. That it's not something that's just simple that we can think about and then move on with life. That this changed everything. Jesus took a system that was incapable of making us holy. And he fulfilled it so that you and I would have the opportunity to be in the presence of a holy God. Because of what he's done, the Holy Spirit now is able to live inside of you and I. And we get to know God by experience as described by the prophet Jeremiah who never had that opportunity. He doesn't, he never understood what we understand, what it means to have God living inside of us. And so don't take this for granted. Today, I want you to go ahead and take the cracker and put it in your mouth and remember that Jesus is the provision that God promised for us. And then take the cup. Remember, this is the blood of Christ that must have been shed, that had to be shed in order for the forgiveness of sins. And then when you drink this cup, that he has done the work for you. You are no longer required to live under, under the law, but you've been given the grace and the freedom to know God by experience for yourself. Let's pray together. God, there's no words that are adequate enough to say thank you. Father, it's so easy often to to get caught up in the busyness of life and to forget about the significance of what you have done for us. Father, I ask that in this moment today that your spirit would draw us even closer to to who you are, Father, that we would know your heart in a way that we haven't known it before. That we would understand the gravity of which you love us. Father, for any of those in the room today that don't know you in that way, who don't know you as their Savior, who don't understand what it means to have a relationship with you, Father, I pray that you would draw their hearts in this moment. Father, that you would help them to understand their need for you as their Savior. Father, as we leave this place today, Don't let this be a moment that comes and goes and we forget about it. Father, as we go through every day, as we we eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, help us to be reminded that you have fulfilled the law on our behalf. And what you ask of us now is simply to know you, to walk with you, to be in your presence. Father, give us the desire every day as we wake up to know you in a deeper way. Draw us to yourself, Father. Jesus, thank you again so much for doing what we never could, for giving yourself for us, for atoning for our sin, for being the sacrifice that was required. Thank you.